You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's that time of the year where you start thinking, ooh, how long is it till I'm going away? But I've just learned a horrifying fact, which is that Lizzie and Ewan don't go away in summer. I don't believe in wasting the nice weather. I mean, that's optimistic at best, Lizzie, surely. The good weather is not guaranteed. (laughs) When you really need a holiday is the depths of November or February. Oh, agreed. Lizzie and I have just found out something else we agree on. I don't believe in summer holidays either because (laughs) the weather is not very nice in the UK for 10 months of the year. So why spend the two months of the year when the planes are also busy with lots of kids and the prices are higher? Mm. Why leave the country? It seems crazy. Indeed. Other other opinions are available. However, someone that's decided to come to the UK, uh, not on holidays, it has to be said. It is a work trip. Uh, But Joe Biden's here. Seen him rocking up at Downing Street already. Yes, interesting itinerary. London, Vilnius, and Helsinki. It's, it's not a, it's not a typical uh, European tour. That's quite is it? Nice to be honest. Yeah, it's not bad really. Yeah, I've just seen his car struggling to do a three point turn at Downing Street. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, that, did that give you some sort of trauma, Lizzie? Like... <laughs> but it's very small, having that... spent many days kettled there. And presumably, it's not a small car either. No, I imagine <laughs> not. No, indeed. Well, apart from the driving difficulties, uh, he is, of course, here to uh, first of all. Uh, meet the Prime Minister and King Charles later on as well. He's also then going to be going to the NATO's le- NATO Leaders uh, Summit as well. Um, Lizzie, this is something that I know you've been kind of following very closely. Is this a, a moment to demonstrate the newly renewed relationship between Rishi Sunak and well, Joe Biden? It has to be said that they've met five times in the past five months, so it does look like the chemistry's hotting up between the two leaders. But as you say, it's a stop-off on the way to this NATO summit in Lithuania, so I expect that some of the issues they'll be discussing will be some of the issues that will come up there. For example, the UK doesn't back the US decision to send cluster bombs to Kyiv, nor do more than 100 other countries, and that's because of the danger to civilian 
weapons from unexploded bomblets, if you want to use that word. Um, and then they're probably also going to talk about brokering a deal with Turkey, which of course has blocked Sweden from joining NATO. But while they're at it, other issues between just the two of them, for example, the Atlantic Declaration, this potential trade pact that was the outcome of Sunak's last visit to Washington. And while they're talking about trade, they'll probably end up talking about post-Brexit trade in Northern Ireland, because of course power sharing hasn't yet been restored in Stormont. But when Biden meets the king, they'll probably end up talking about the climate because, as you know, that's a long-standing passion of the king's. Yes, indeed. Um, Of course, we're, as Ewan mentioned, uh, Joe Biden will be going on to Vilnius to the NATO Leader Summit as well. I have to point out, our colleague Maria Tadeo is there and the Lithuanian Foreign Ministry has handed out t-shirts that say, I didn't know where Vilnius was. Luckily, the NATO Summit was there. Uh, (laughs) So, in fact, everyone's learning something uh, on this trip to Lithuania as well. That's, of course, a story we'll bring you plenty more on later in the week. Well, let's turn to the story that's dominated the news agenda over the weekend. If you haven't heard about it, here is a brief summary. The BBC has suspended a male presenter who hasn't been identified after he was accused of having paid a 17-year-old for sexually explicit photos. Now, the incident came to light after the mother of the young person involved spoke to the Sun newspaper. She says their family originally complained to the broadcaster in May. The BBC says it's working as quickly as possible to establish the facts, uh, quote, in order to properly inform the appropriate next steps. The Metropolitan Police are also reported to be meeting with the BBC today about this matter. It's a story which has elicited much commentary on social media and from politicians over the weekend. This morning, the Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, said that there will be a review of the chronology of events. While those investigations are underway, we want to look more broadly at what this all means for the BBC. And for that, we're joined now by Jamie Angus, who has held a number of senior roles in BBC News, including Director of the World Service. Jamie, thank you very much for being with us. How much of a crisis is this for the BBC? Well, it's impossible to say because so little is actually known about the case. And I think the general message has to be that people need to wait and see as the process takes place, whether that's a police process or a BBC internal process, because it's not really possible to say uh, until we have a sense of what the facts of the case are. So I completely understand why there's been so much press coverage. It's very, very difficult to answer that question until we know what the facts of the case are. Jamie, what questions do you think the BBC need to answer over this case? Well, again, in, until um, you know, until an investigation of the facts has taken place, it's very difficult to say. I think one of the things that's really struck me looking at the coverage over the weekend is that the BBC is in a uh, in, in a position where it has conflicting responsibilities. It has responsibilities as an employer to the employee who is involved in this process, and as an employer, they have to show due and fair process to an employee. But at the same time, they also have an obligation to the alleged victim and their family. But more broadly, because they're a public broadcaster, they have further obligations to openness and accountability, perhaps beyond that, that would be applied to almost any other organisation. And I think that's why the BBC often finds itself in difficult situations like this, when the differing sets of responsibilities it have come into conflict with each other. And there's no easy way to resolve that. Is this a much bigger story in the media because it benefits other media organisations to be able to criticise the BBC? Well, that's undoubtedly true. And from my experience working in the BBC, it was very difficult when you got into a uh, a sort of long-running 
difficult story for the BBC because almost no other media outlet had much of an interest in giving the BBC a fair crack of the whip. And indeed, a number of media organisations had a specific interest in not giving the BBC a fair crack of the whip. But having said all that, I think it's right that the BBC is exposed to a greater level of scrutiny and accountability. And the reason for that, of course, is because of the way that the BBC is funded, not just that it's funded publicly by the payment of a license fee by members of the public, but that the way that license fee is levied is compulsory. And I think that is the absolute issue at the heart of BBC accountability. It does have a much higher level of accountability than a private, uh, privately owned organisation or even a publicly owned commercial organisation because of the way that its funding is, uh, is levied compulsorily, effectively, on members of the public. And I think that's one of the issues, one of the longer term issues, actually, that this uh, story will raise. It does seem like these firestorms come up with some regularity how much senior management time at the BBC is, is taken up with dealing with this kind of thing and dealing with external criticism well it's right that the BBC cares about how it is seen publicly and the critical issue in this and other stories is the relationship of trust with audiences because again you and as I as I just said the issue is that the BBC compels people to pay for it and there is not really an optionality about that and therefore its relationship of trust with the audiences it serves are absolutely at the heart of what it does so it's right that the BBC worries about the impact on its reputation of stories you know we've had recently the story about Gary Lineker, the story about Martin Bashir and the Princess Diana Panorama. These stories roll around once or twice a year, inevitably, I fear, for the BBC, because the BBC undertakes so much sensitive output and is so much at the centre of public and media life in the UK. And that is inevitable, however careful the BBC is about its output and how it employs people. It's just inevitable that these kinds of stories will come up from time to time. Um, so it's right that the BBC should worry about how people perceive it. But at the same time, as I said at the start, it has conflicting responsibilities towards the public uh, and towards the staff that it employs. Given that higher threshold that you've outlined, the BBC has to hold itself to as an organisation. Are the, does it have the right and correct processes to be able to deal with internal issues that it has to address, given that it's had so many of them over the past number of years? I mean, personally, I think it does, but I think it is very difficult when what would normally be a process that would just take place entirely in private if uh, the alleged perpetrator here worked for a private business uh, uh, or a manufacturing business or a financial services business, none of this would be in the public eye and there would be no public interest in reporting it. And that allows time for something like an investigation to be carried out. And of course, the extraordinary levels of press scrutiny mean that that is difficult to preserve as the BBC is constantly being pressurised to react in real time. Um, so I don't think it's really that the BBC's processes are lacking. I think it's just, as, I, as I've been saying, when the application of those processes runs into a, a conflicting imperative, which is the BBC's need to give accountability for what it does in real time and the political implications of that. Jamie, do you think the BBC has got better in recent years at dealing with scandals and, and allegations and, and criticism? Is it, is, it, is it better at standing up for itself than it used to be? 
Well, it's very interesting. The BBC doesn't currently have a full-time chairman, as far as I'm aware. It has an interim chairman after the departure of Richard Sharp. And I think these are moments where the BBC needs its governance structure to work for it. Uh, I was very interested in an interview that Richard Sharp gave in The Telegraph over the weekend, sort of exit interview that he did with Christopher Hope in The Telegraph, where he talked about the BBC's propensity to form a circular firing squad, as he put it, when there were controversies within the BBC and how the BBC reported on it. And I think it's a really interesting con comment and it's, it's worth pausing on because the BBC feels it has a duty over and above almost any kind of story to report on itself without any suggestion that it's pulling its punches. And I think this and other recent examples that, that I gave earlier in the interview are stories where the BBC understandably feels that it has to lead from the front in levels of coverage. So I noticed this was the national news lead on BBC Radio this morning. And I think a fair-minded observer would say, well, you know, this is a day where President Biden is just about to land in the UK on his way to a NATO summit, talked very importantly about Ukraine's entry to NATO last night. Is this really the most important story in the UK right now? I think personally, it probably isn't. But at the same time, having worked inside BBC News, I can completely understand why news editors feel that it should be at the top running orders. And I think audiences kind of viewing this from the outside need to understand that kind of, again, contrasting set of um, incentives that are going on inside the organisation. This is also unwelcome focus being put on the BBC at a time where there's, there's a debate over whether the licence fee will be allowed to rise in line with inflation when the current freeze expires in, in 2024. Is the BBC's public funding at risk, do you think? No more or less so than it ever has been. And I noted, you know, in, in my career in the BBC, which is over 20 years, every time charter renewal, which happens once every 11 years now, came up, it was said, this is absolutely the last time that the license fee will be extended. And every time it was extended, because I guess in my view, the license fee is almost as bad as all the other options. You know, it's probably the least worst funding option for a public broadcaster. But I do think that when the license fee renewal comes up in another four or five years time, I believe, that it is time for a real change in the way that the license fee is funded because it does feel increasingly anachronistic. It, it is a regressive charge that uh, effectively punishes people with lower disposable incomes. It has no mechanism currently to allow people with higher incomes to pay voluntarily towards the cost of the BBC. And it does not allow the BBC to do important things that I think it needs to do. It needs to raise much more money commercially to invest in uh, new content that it can monetize internationally outside the UK, for example. It has a, a world-class and well-regarded production arm, which is undercapitalized compared to all its other competitors, the likes of Netflix and Apple TV and Amazon and so on. These are the really important issues for license fee renewal. How do you allow the BBC to leverage its extraordinary brand value and quality value, particularly outside the UK? It's something I dealt with a lot in the World Service. How does the BBC set itself up to do that while minimising its impact on low-income families in the UK, but at the same time having that universality 
that everybody pays for it and everybody has a stake in what it does and what it represents. Jamie, the BBC has had difficult relations with with governments going back uh, many years, including the Blair government uh, uh, under the Labour Party. Are relations with, with this government particularly strained? I don't think so, in truth. I mean, I lived through some pretty turbulent times in the BBC under a Labour government, including during the Hutton inquiry and the death of Dr David Kelly, which... I can tell you from having been there, felt like about as bad as it could ever get. This was a day where both the chairman and the director general of the BBC resigned on the same day following the publication of the Hutton inquiry. So I think memories are short and it's easy to say, oh, you know, this is as tense or as bad as it's ever been. But actually my my instinct and based on my private conversations with many politicians of, of all parties actually, is that this government understands the inherent value of a well-run and well-structured public broadcaster as much as any other government. There is a lot of heat and not much light sometimes, and it's very helpful to try and distinguish between the sort of heat that accompanies uh, a story like this one and genuine long-term changes in how the BBC is funded and governed. I, I wasn't particularly surprised to see that the Secretary of State had asked for an account from the BBC over the weekend, people will draw their their own conclusions as to whether that was a political decision or a governance, purely sort of technical governance related issue. Didn't surprise me particularly. But, uh, you know, it has to be the case. The BBC, so long as the BBC represents such a central role in the consumption, media consumption of so many people in this country, and so long as it is funded with this element of compulsion and universality, you can't be that surprised if politicians take a close interest in how it does what it does. There are major challenges, though, facing public broadcasters everywhere. I've seen some examples in Europe where they've been forced to close, uh, others scaling back dramatically the amount of production that they do. Funding challenges exist everywhere for public broadcasters now. You know, with the rise of streaming models, different funding for media more broadly, is this a moment where we could be thinking about a very different BBC? Do you think the organisation will exist in a similar form in in 10 or 20 years' time? Well, it's interesting you mention that because I've been watching with interest the events RTE actually over the last couple of weeks where the Irish public broadcasters, you know, lost its... Director General over um, a, a, a you know te- technical issue about funding of salaries, of top-up salaries for its highest-paid talent, and I think you know the RTE experience, the BBC experience, the experience of the ABC in Australia, uh, the CBC in Canada, other public broadcasters that I'm familiar with from my work at the World Service are, are exactly mirror what you describe. They enjoy extremely high levels of scrutiny as they should do based on the privileged public funding they receive but i think there is a risk isn't there that public broadcasters are you throw out the baby with the bathwater and in weakening public broadcasters you end up with a very very much reduced media climate generally in your home market i think with so many challenges now around you know misinformation and disinformation uh, you know the rise of uh, fake news on social media the fact that so many young audiences aren't interacting with broadcasters, be public broadcasters or other broadcasters in any way at all, live so much of their lives online, particularly in their video consumption habits. These are huge structural problems for public broadcasters all around the world. 
and it undoubtedly doesn't help that in these sort of contested and increasingly divisive times, the public broadcaster usually ends up being, uh, you know, I, I like to say a slow moving target in the center of any row that's going on in the wider culture and society at any given time. And that's true in Ireland, in the UK, in Canada, in Australia. It's true for PBS and NPR in the United States. It's true in some of the countries in Eastern Europe that you're alluding to. You know, these are difficult times for public broadcasters, but I still believe that public support is there for them. And it's up to the BBC and others to make the case uh, for, for, for the continued, not just survival of the BBC, but for the fact that it needs to flourish and to be able to compete internationally. Okay, Jamie Angus, former director of the BBC World Service, thank you very much for joining us. Let's turn our attention now to a major political event in the city, just over the road from where we are actually, the annual Mansion House speech from the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. Now we've brought you some details of what to expect on the show already, but let's bring you up to date on what to expect with our city editor, Catherine Griffiths. Great to have you in the studio, Catherine. Rishi Sunak's government tries usually to under-promise, I should say, and over-deliver. It hasn't seemed to worked out with the top five priorities. How much of a test is this speech for Jeremy Hunt? Well, I think it's a huge test for Jeremy Hunt because there's just been so much hoopla about it in advance. Um, I'm not sure that the government intended it that way. And certainly, you know, there's some interest normally in the Mansion House speech, but nothing like this level. It's, this is a bit more like a kind of a budget. Um, and I think it's partly because um, just, you know, the nature of what he's planning to announce is really quite big. Um, and also because there's had to be lots of consultation with others in the city. So there are people out there who've um, got a fair idea of what's going to be in it. And there's also just been an awful lot of kind of disagreement um, between different stakeholders about the plans and that of course has led to people talking and people getting angry and that makes for fairly decent news copy. So what are we expecting? What are the what are the headlines that we, we, we could see coming out of the speech this evening? So I think you know as much as it's sort of hard in some ways to um, imagine this being an exciting subject it is pensions, it's pensions all the way um, Big, reform, big ambitions for reforms to the pensions market. And it's it's a sound idea. I mean, as we know, the government's incredibly keen to find these Brexit dividends and to boost London. And people sort of regrouped a few months ago and thought, OK, well, let's try and bring it back to basics. And they thought, OK, well, what that really comes down to is money, liquidity. We need there to be more liquidity in the UK market. 20, 30 years ago, pension funds were the big investors in British companies. Um, the hope is to try and recreate that. And of course, the world is very different in many ways. It's a much more international world and international investment is much more um, necessary and core now than it might have been 20, 30 years ago, a generation ago. But nonetheless, sort of taking it back to that, that first principle of let's find ways to get this wall of money, which is what it is in our UK pension funds, two and a half trillion pounds, roughly speaking, into investments. It doesn't have to all be British companies, but the hope is a big slug of money that's sort of tied up in gilts and other things will go into growth assets. I was speaking to a former Chancellor recently who said that it should be framed as the pension funds doing something to earn their tax relief status. Uh, and that's something being that they invest in UK growth companies. Do you think that framing will be the sort of language we hear? I think, although I actually 
must say I think there's quite a lot in that point um, and also I think there's another point in the sense of these are our pension retirement funds and we want to live in a country that is is a good thriving country when in our old age so why shouldn't we actually think about some of that money going into supporting the, the British economy but putting that aside I don't think I don't think Jeremy Hunt will probably frame it that way today. I think they've thought about that kind of thing, um, but essentially they've wanted to try and keep the the pension funds and the you know the, the the gatekeepers, the insurers on side. So I don't think it will be too much kind of lecturing. It will be more we're we're really pleased that those big influential firms uh, are are with us in this endeavour. Now, I imagine you'll have your uh, Mansion House speech bingo card out for this evening with all of the key words that you'll be listening out for during it. What other kind of key terms should you you be scoring yourself extra points on if you hear? Um, I mean, yep, I'll be distributing my bingo cards for the whole room. We're so. all expecting We're one. very yeah. excited. It's very exciting. You hear pension, I say drink. <laughs> exactly. If it's just me, that might look weird, but um, we'll hope for the best. Um, so I think, yeah, the pensions and this notion of the kind of the, the key number seems to be 5%, um, that 5% of pension funds money should go into these growth assets, British and other. Um, but yet we'll, and I undoubtedly think it will be the focus of the speech and the talk of those, uh, you know, gathering to have their drinks beforehand. But there will be other things too. Um, the Chancellor talked about Edinburgh reforms towards at the end of last year, and we may hear some more about that. Ways to make listings easier, more streamlined in this country. Um, other things potentially to sort of just modernise the system here. This is this is a whole kind of package of measures to try and I don't know once in a generation measures to make the UK um, a really kind of competitive, modern place to attract capital both from our own pension funds and international capital so we might hear a, more, a bit more about that as well. Just to temper our expectations, historically how many of the announcements from the Mansion House speech end up as policy and how long does it take for them to feed through usually? That is a great bit of analysis someone should do that I have, have, <laughs> I don't have not done. I just mean in general, you know, given that it doesn't look likely that if you'll trust the polls, that the government is going to be in office for years and years to come. Yes. Is it likely that big long-term promises they make will actually come to fruition? Yeah. So I think quite often with the Mansion House speech, the Chancellor is casting around for something to say. And if you look back to previous Mansion House speeches, I mean, we've, in the last couple of years, we've had some excitement with guess who the Chancellor is going into the Mansion House speech, which is another game we can play. <laughs> but um, I, no, I think so. I think there's some, you know, ironically, in a way, there's been a bit of a well, what do we say in the Mansion House in in the summer when you've also got kind of things like the budget budget to contend with? But um, definitely this time, it's the case that um, Hunt, I don't think he will say, acknowledge that this is a kind of a, a multi-year project and what that might mean for, for him and, and his boss, the, the Prime Minister, that they may not be doing their jobs to see it through. But of course, we know that is the case. So interestingly, actually, I think for all of the kind of big firms that have been involved in the consultation, they've been thinking hard about, well, yeah, okay, if we sign up for this now, and actually we don't love it in many ways, we don't love the fact that we might have a sort of a reduction in our, our fees and our and our business opportunities potentially. Well, what happens if Labour wins the, the next general election? Are they going to be in favour of this or will they kind of go on a different course? And I think what's been quite crucial is 
them being told by Rachel Reeves and her team that, yeah, they very much want to see these reforms. It's a multi-parliament affair, probably. Um, and so, yes, I think everyone acknowledges it's a long-term thing. Catherine, thank you for uh, sharing your excitement at the Chancellor's uh, big evening. That's our city editor, Catherine Griffiths. And that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode and the Mansion House bingo cards were produced by James Walcock. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.